Quality sleep is essential, and that's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. So you can choose what's right for you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores. Sleep Number does that. Sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. This is CNN Breaking News. You're watching CNN. I'm Julia Chatterley in New York with you for the next hour. And we begin with the latest from Ukraine. The besieged city of Mariupol is where we begin. Authorities there accusing Russian forces of dropping bombs on a civilian escape route. There's been no word from the Russian side to refute the claim. Please be warned, the following images are graphic. Three people are now known to have died after an attack on a maternity and children's hospital in the city. Among the victims was a child, a little girl. The Russian airstrike left the facility in ruins. Ukrainian President Volodymyr Zelensky calling it proof of a genocide of Ukrainians. The World Health Organization says there have been 24 verified incidents of attacks on healthcare facilities in Ukraine since the start of the invasion. Diplomatic efforts leading nowhere this morning to a meeting in Turkey between the foreign ministers of Russia and Ukraine ended with no agreement on humanitarian corridors or a ceasefire. U.S. Vice President Kamala Harris is in Poland for talks with the president and prime minister. Her visit comes after the United States turned down a Polish offer to send MiG fighter jets to Ukraine via a U.S. airbase in Germany. Ukraine's president called the Russian strike of Maripol's maternity hospital an atrocity. The city council says warplanes dropped several bombs on the building. That, despite Russia having agreed to a 12-hour ceasefire on Wednesday, It was intended to allow civilians to get out of a number of specific towns and cities. Sam Kylie describes the scenes. We're really stretched. Whatever cars you have, send them here. He says airstrike, maternity hospital. This was Russia's response to a global appeal for a ceasefire to evacuate a city of a million people. A bomb dropped next to a maternity hospital in Mariupol. It's hospital number three. Inside, a frantic search for survivors. A miraculous outcome to an attempt to amass killing at a place where lives should begin. Many women and children had already fled to underground bunkers after a week of Russian bombardment. Ukraine's president renewed his pleas for NATO to drive Russia from his nation's skies after the hospital airstrike. Everything that the occupiers do with Mariupol is already beyond atrocity. Europeans, Ukrainians, citizens of Mariupol, today we must be united in condemning this war crime of Russia. Evacuations from other towns have been more successful, but still very limited. Around 700 people, mostly women and children, were bussed out of Enagoda, the site of Europe's biggest nuclear reactor, which was captured recently by Russia. The shops are empty. There's nothing there. Not enough medical supplies. We're tired. We need to eat and rest. It may seem extraordinary, but these are the lucky ones. They've escaped from the shadow of a nuclear power station and the clutches of Russian troops. But in comparison to what people are enduring in Mariupol, this is good fortune. Yulia Karyulan volunteers at a refugee centre in Zaporizhia set up to receive people fleeing her hometown of Mariupol. 
It's empty. She's been waiting a week for news from home of her husband Evgeny and daughter Yasia. This morning, she got a brief call. How's your daughter doing? My daughter told me she loves me. Of course she does. Actually, how she is, she is alive. What can, she's doing like all other children doing now in Mariupol. Almost no food, no drinking water, no electricity. It was minus five this night. They have no heating. They're just sitting in cold basement in some courts. Her small family is living in a bomb shelter with hundreds of others. She says they can only survive another few days. Then they will have to surface, perhaps to face more of this. Russia is bombing the civilian evacuation route out of the city, according to Mariupol officials. They accuse Russia of deliberately targeting roads in order to completely isolate the city. Mariupol was first shelled in the early days of the invasion and has been under siege for almost a week. Ukraine's foreign minister says its civilians are being held hostage. Scott McLean joins us now from Lviv. Scott, good to have you with us. It's not just about the civilians being attacked, it seems, as they're trying to escape, but also the accusation that Russia is now targeting the roads so to permanently contain people in the city and prevent those escaping that want to. Yeah, that's exactly right. And that's something that's been going on for several days, it seems, because this humanitarian corridor out of Mariupol has really not gotten off the ground, despite the many attempts to actually make it happen. It seems that Russia and Ukraine have not been able to agree on the specific details to actually allow this corridor of people to get out and allow this convoy of food and aid and water and all the things that you need uh, to get in. And this is a city that has been cut off for some time now. Uh, they have no power, they have no water, in many cases they have no heat. It is a very desperate situation. The President Zelensky, Vladimir Zelensky, says that the Russians are trying to humiliate the Ukrainians by encircling the cities and essentially cutting them off from all of the uh, resources and the ability to escape. So the situation is dire. The talks today between Sergei Lavrov, the Russian foreign minister, and the Ukrainian foreign minister, Dmitry Kuleba, uh, yielded basically nothing. But Lavrov's point was that, look, uh, this was never going to be the venue to work out something on the ground. This should have been the teams that are actually on the ground. Of course, there are talks going on in Belarus. They've had three rounds already. They have agreed on precious little, but they have agreed on at least the need for these humanitarian corridors. But it seems, Julia, that actually getting them done in practice is a lot more difficult. Yeah, the irony of talking about them in those talks in Turkey. Meanwhile, you describing the scenes that continue to take place and the bombing that seems to be continuing to take place around these areas at the same time in, in Ukraine. I've just got um, a play, a piece of tape, actually, to show you what the Ukrainian foreign minister said coming out of those talks. Let me just play it for our viewers. We also raised the issue of a ceasefire, 24-hour ceasefire, to resolve the most pressing humanitarian issues. Uh, we did not make progress on this since uh, it seems that there are other decision makers uh, for, this, uh, for this matter in Russia. Scott, the upshot of that, it seems that he doesn't believe he's negotiating with the person people, person who makes all the decisions here, which I think we all know who he was indicating. He also suggested they're going to keep on going with their aggression until the Ukrainians surrender. And obviously he said we won't. 
Yeah, and so Sergei Lavrov's point was that, look, these negotiations are happening in Belarus and Russia has submitted this document, which they said was quite comprehensive to essentially bring about the end of the war and a new relationship with Ukraine. Uh, of course, what Russia is looking for is for Ukraine to be neutral, for them to give away Crimea, Crimea and the two breakaway territories in the east as well, something um, Ukraine, at least to this point, hasn't really been willing to talk about. And so that seems like a long way off. And so perhaps it's not that surprising that Russia is unwilling to give an inch here because they're wanting to keep up this maximum pressure campaign. But of course, the Ukrainians have also pointed out that the West's maximum pressure campaign in terms of sanctions, they believe is strengthening their position at the negotiating table. So regardless of what happens with these sanctions, though, Julia, the bottom line is that people are suffering on the ground right now and they are in desperate need of help as the fighting continues. And that's the truth. Scott McLean, thank you so much for that. A show of support, too, from Vice President Kamala Harris in Poland. After talks with the Polish president earlier, Harris said her trip to Warsaw was a signal of the United States' commitment to NATO. The United States is prepared to defend every inch of NATO territory. The United States takes seriously that an attack against one is an attack against all. CNN's Kevin Liptak is traveling with the vice president and joins us now. Kevin, avoiding, unfortunately, commenting on a solution of some kind for providing jets to Ukraine that the president continues to say they desperately need. I think the, the question coming away from this for me was, are they reaching the limits of what they're able to do at this stage within the confines of NATO and non-NATO nations? Well, I think they're reaching the limits of both what they're able to do and really what they're willing to do. Uh, these jets seem to have been a red line for the United States. And you did hear the vice president sort of skirt around the issue when she was asked today about this apparent disconnect between the United States and Poland over this question of sending uh, their Soviet-era jets to Ukraine. And this trip was really meant to be about uh, reinforcing cooperation among NATO allies, uh, talking about unity between the United States and Poland. And that was really undercut somewhat by that statement that the Poles put out really in the hours uh, before Harris departed Washington to come here to Warsaw, uh, saying that they would transfer their jets to the United States instead of transferring them directly to Poland. Now, uh, when she was asked about it, the vice president simply said that the U.S. and Poland were coordinated and that they would remain that way. She said they were united, quote, full stop. What I thought was interesting, though, was the Polish president uh, was not shy in talking about why they put out that statement. He said uh, that Poland wants sort of buy-in from all of NATO on this issue instead of directly providing these uh, jets to Ukraine, just Poland itself, because of the questions of escalation. And there's also questions of logistics, of how do you get these planes uh, to Ukraine so that their pilots can use them. And so uh, he gave a, a rather lengthy answer, sort of ticking through the uh, reasons why he did that, not necessarily addressing why he didn't tell the White House beforehand, but giving this rationale that he wanted uh, the entire NATO membership to be part of this and not just NATO. Uh, now, the other big issue that Harris addressed here in Poland was the refugee crisis. And you see that here in Warsaw in the bus station right next to the hotel where she is staying. 
It's turned into really kind of a receiving center uh, for these busloads of Ukrainians who are arriving here. More than a million have come to Poland. The Polish president uh, requested assistance from the United States on that issue. And Harris did announce that the U.S. was providing $53 million in additional humanitarian assistance uh, to help alleviate this situation. Uh, she was also asked about the issue of war crimes. And she said uh, she, she stopped short of calling uh, what's happening on the ground there in Ukraine war crimes. But she said it was clear that atrocities were happening and that an inv investigation uh, should proceed. Julia. Mm. And I think with regards to uh, your point about his lengthy answer on why he aired the proposal of providing jets to the United States, mm -hmm. some questions don't need answering. They're clear. Kevin Liptag, thank you so much for that. <laughs> Now, more Russian oligarchs sanctioned the UK government, adding seven more individuals to its sanctions list, including VTB Bank chairman Andrei Kostin and Chelsea football club owner Roman Abramovich. Prime Minister Boris Johnson saying there can be no safe havens for those who've supported Putin's vicious assault on Ukraine. Anna Stewart joins me now. So these are some of the most recognisable faces, Russian faces in the West, Anna. And it seems they got, what, one, two weeks longer than other individuals from and Russia? Yeah, there's been a lot of criticism and pressure on the government um, to have announced this weeks ago, frankly, mm. um, particularly when it comes to Roman Abramovich, who's possibly, you know, the best known oligarch with major assets here in the UK. Uh, and according to today, he's, his net worth is over $12 billion. We can bring you the full list um, of those included on this. It also includes Igor Sechin, who's the CEO of uh, the Russian oil giant Rosneft. You can see Andrei Kostin there, as you mentioned, the chairman of VTB Bank. That's the second largest bank in Russia. All of those, apart from Abramovich, are already uh, sanctioned by the EU, the US or both. So the UK does feel like it's coming to this incredibly um, late. Why did it take so long? That has allowed plenty of time for asset shifting, asset shedding. I think we saw that most clearly, of course, with Abramovich, who announced the sale of Chelsea Football Club. Didn't have time to get that one through, though. Uh, also looking at some of his other assets. I've been watching the super yacht that is tied to Abramovich. It left Barcelona on Tuesday, currently cruising uh, down south of Sicily, which I'm sure is lovely at this time of year. Um, we don't know where it's going, but clearly out of the reach of UK authorities. And I want to mention one more asset, actually, of Abramovich's, which is, of course, his stake in Evraz, the steel Maker. It's, it's listed in London. And I want to bring you the share price, Julia. It fell 11% earlier today. Shares are now suspended. That was a result of the FCA saying they want to protect the other investors of Evraz, pending clarification of the impact the sanctions will have. Now, I was wondering, actually, whether they're looking at a line from the UK government that came out today regarding Evraz, uh, in which it said Evraz is or has been essentially directly involved in destabilizing Ukraine, saying potentially it's been supplying steel to the Russian military, which may have been used in the production of tanks, which I think raises questions as to why Evraz has not been sanctioned as a corporation and whether it will be uh, maybe in the days to come. That's an interesting, wasn't it? I guess you'd have to prove military contracts if you think this is effectively directly providing materials that are uh, targeting civilians and others in, in Ukraine. Um, I want to jump back, though, and talk about Chelsea, because this was interesting mm. for me, too. All sorts of limits now applied to Chelsea Football Club, its operations, who can actually go, who can buy tickets. Also, the sale, I believe, is going to be managed by the UK government. Yeah, we think the sale, while stalled, probably can still go ahead, but it will involve the UK government issuing a special license, another license effectively. Now, Abramovich had uh, 
pledged to donate all funds from the sale had it been able to go through before he was sanctioned um, to some sort of foundation to help victims of the conflict in Ukraine. Now, it's entirely possible that the UK government could set up a similar sort of fund to that aim. Uh, Clearly, proceeds will not be going to Abramovich himself. I think it's likely the government will support a sale of Chelsea Football Club. They made, as you say, a number of measures today to try and protect it and effectively Premier League. For instance, they've granted a special license, so no change to fixtures. I believe there is a match coming up today. People who have bought tickets can still go. That includes season ticket holders. Salaries and pensions will be paid. I, of course, questioned immediately how long can they afford to pay the salaries of uh, football players because lots of things are not going to be happening. No new ticket sales. The merchandise shop is closed. The hotel is closed. No transfers, no new contracts. Uh, And one sponsor, Mobile Network 3, says they are reviewing their position. Uh, We have reached out to other ones, including Hublot, Nike, Trivago and Hyundai, but no comment from them yet. Julia. Yeah. Fascinating to see. And your point about perhaps a fund to sell these assets on managed by the government is an interesting one for things like houses and other assets. Mm-hmm. Watch this space. Anna Stewart, thank you for that. Okay, still to come. Mining giants cutting ties with Russia. The chairman of Fortescue Metals tells us why he's joined the Exodus. And feeding civilians in a war zone. The World Food Programme is helping out in Ukraine, but says the war will add to global hunger. Stay with us. Welcome back. The world reacting in horror today as the Russian military is accused of stepping up attacks on civilians and their proposed escape routes in the southeast Ukrainian city of Mariupol. Ukraine's growing humanitarian crisis only worsening as the Russian invasion enters a third week. And after peace talks failed once again today, it raises fresh uncertainty over how long this war continues and how. Mirroring that uncertainty, volatility well across the energy complex. And in turn, I think that's driving sentiment across broader financial markets, both Brent crude and US crude higher by around 5%, as you can see there. This after plunging 12% in the previous session on hopes that OPEC might raise output as the West moves away from Russian fuel. The UAE ambassador to Washington telling CNN that his country will push OPEC to increase production. That was an abrupt U-turn from their previous stance. Fast forward to today, the UAE energy minister in the last few minutes has said his country still supports OPEC plus targets. So mixed messages coming from that country's officials. And that's added to the upward pressure that we've seen in today's session in the last few minutes, too. And today's U.S. inflation data reminding us of the urgency to tackle the supply and demand imbalance in just in this sector alone. U.S. consumer prices in February rising 7.9 percent year over year. That is a fresh 40-year high, and of course, higher all, a major contributing factor. This data, of course, collected well before the decision to phase out Russian energy and the latest price spikes in essential commodities like wheat. And from phasing out to pulling out, more global firms cutting ties and commercial operations with Russia, mining and metal giant Rio Tinto the latest. And Australian mining group Fortescue Metals halted its Russian projects earlier this month. The world's fourth biggest iron ore miner, Fortescue, says its CO2 goal is net zero by 2040. It was in talks with the Russian government about investing in hydrogen projects in the country. But now its chairman says every dollar made in Russia is blood money. Joining us now, Andrew Forrest, founder and chairman of Fortescue Metals Group. Andrew, always good to have you on the show. Blood money. It's a bold statement. Yeah. No, look, it's just how we feel. We have a net zero goal of 2030, and we feel that those companies who are prolonging fossil fuel, particularly 
fossil fuel from Russia or indeed making a dollar anywhere out of Russia because that's now been converted into munitions, into bombs on the Ukrainian people. We're saying it's blood money. Let's get completely out of Russia. Does independent energy security and reducing the reliance on Russia, in your mind, matter more in the short term than cutting back on oil and gas and and tackling the climate crisis? One emergency is today, one emergency is today, but also about the future. Julia, it's a great point, but actually they're completely combined. We need to accelerate vertically the so-called energy transition. It's life and death to people all over the world, but it is particularly critical now that despotic regimes who happen to be sitting on huge piles of oil and gas, empowering their their attitudes, which are irresponsible, you know, power has corrupted them, absolutely, that old term you've heard, to, to take us away from any reliance on them, to make us energy independent as Germany, as America, as Australia, is now critical. And the first time in history we can do that is with the technology we now have for solar and wind direct, the green electricity, green ammonia, green hydrogen, run the entire economy. The problem is all that takes time, Andrew, and what we're looking at today is a boosting of oil and natural gas production, even in the interim, and the risk that actually it pushes nations like the United States and and the EU in totality into the arms of players like Iran, Venezuela, for example. It's sort of a, a battle of the uglies here, and those two are coming out as winners, potentially. Yeah, look, Julia, that is correct. We didn't learn our lesson from the Middle East. We're now learning our lesson from Ukraine, but this time, without any doubt, we have the solutions. Now, to be fair, in in days gone by, when we wanted to push ourselves away from reliance on fossil fuel and reliance on despotic regimes, we couldn't. But now we have no excuse. There's no political leader. There's no business leader. There's no one in responsibility can say, actually, we don't have a practical, implementable solution, because now you do. It's green hydrogen, it's green ammonia, it's green electricity. It can cover the whole gamut of the world economy. So you have a solution. We must take it. And Julia, to reply to your question, yes, uh, but how much time does it take? I would say we need to cut back straight away, even if it's turbulent waters, even if it's some stormy seas. What it won't be is empowering a despotic regime to go from Ukraine to other countries, we must send that message that even if you get through today, we're moving away from your fossil fuel tomorrow. You will not be able to finance any more wars tomorrow. You will have no economy to fight a war with. So stop now. We've got to get that message across. That's why it's today's message, Julia, now. So just very quickly, Andrew, you're saying the EU should have announced sanctions on Russian oil and gas already and deal with the consequences. Look, we, I think if you're a Ukrainian, you would see absolutely no choice but that common sense, Julia. If, if you're looking at it from the vantage point of seeing bombs coming your way, you would not hesitate. The issue now is if Putin's Russia subjugates Ukraine, modelling himself in his ideology of Peter the Great, he will not stop there. We must send the signals now that your great cash flow, the bank for your military, your air force, your navy, your armies, that bank is going to get switched off. And that is 
able to happen with fully renewable energy from hydrogen, ammonia and electricity, all green. We don't need to rush it. See you later. Yeah, Andrew, you know, it's interesting and it's a big question for business too because I talked about and I talk about it on a daily basis, big businesses cutting ties. And I know you at Fortescue have said, look, we're, we're cancelling any planned investments, the negotiations over green hydrogen too. What does that mean in practice? Do you, do you write those investments and interests down and say, we're walking away or will back doors to, to Russia still be left open? Because that's what's always happened in the past within one, two years. People are back in Russia and it's almost like the atrocities and things that were breaking international law at the time never happened. Is this time different? Yeah, look, Julia, I think this time is different. For those fossil fuel companies, I send a strong message for those companies who are suspending operations if you're going to keep operations in any country which is prepared to invade another, then you're actually receiving blood money. You are you are being supported by other people's misery. To say clearly, Julia, we now have a choice. We can go entirely pollution-free energy, an entire pollution-free future. We have the technology. We don't need fossil fuels. We do not need Russian oil and gas. We now have the renewable energy, which can last the Anthropocene humankind many thousands of times forever. Let's just make the move. Let's get on with it. Let's cut off Russia. Let's know that we're protecting not only the people of Ukraine, but any other country which may suffer at the hands of a despotic regime empowered from fossil fuel, because green energy is everywhere. It can be completely democratic. You now can have energy sovereignty in America, in Australia, in the Ukraine, all over the world, all through Africa, you, we can become energy independent as nations. And that, of course, is a great catalyst for peace. Yeah, we just have to put our minds to it. Um, I don't want to speak to you now as the, as the chairman of, of Fortescue. I want to speak to you as a, a wealthy individual in your own right. And it, and it goes back to the conversation I was having earlier on in the show about assets like things like Chelsea Football Club, um, boats, houses, assets around the world that are most likely going to come onto the market. We've had JP Morgan talking about distressed debt opportunities as well in, in, in Russian debt. That's something a little bit different. But how should the assets that are in nice places, Saint-Tropez, London, for example, that are being sold at this moment by Russians also be treated? How do you think that should be handled? Because there's a risk here, too, that you are effectively handing money to those that are tied to a regime that's doing what it's doing in Ukraine at this moment. How should that be handled? Look, Julia, I think everyone has to face their own conscience. You know, they have to go to sleep at night with their own demons. I certainly won't be getting involved in it at, at all. I would counsel my friends and colleagues to say, if you're indirectly or directly empowering a, trans, a regime, which is prepared to totally subjugate another country uh, with hideous bloodshed, then I would say I wouldn't touch it with a stick. Now, Julia, that's a personal moral question, yes. a bit like about business saying, well, once the war finishes, will we just go back to normality? No, we must not, as a global business community, reward atrocious behaviour. And if you do, then I think your shareholders should really hold you to account. Yeah, I mean, there are so many examples of this around the world. We need the commitment to this shared around the world. But that's another conversation. Andrew, great to chat to you as always. Andrew Forrest, founder and chairman of Fortescue Metals there. Thank you, sir. Coming up.
Mariupol under siege, the city being hit again as diplomatic efforts for a ceasefire end without progress. The latest next. Welcome back. No agreement on humanitarian corridors or a ceasefire after the foreign ministers of Russia and Ukraine met in Turkey. Meanwhile, officials in Mariupol are accusing Russia of deliberately targeting roads in order to completely isolate the city. Mariupol has been under siege for almost a week. Ukraine's foreign minister says civilians are being held hostage. In the meantime, President Vladimir Putin has been meeting with Russian government officials to discuss Russia's response to Western sanctions. Officials have so far detailed plans to help stabilize the financial markets and measures to support businesses and individuals. Not surprisingly, Putin put the blame for global financial turmoil squarely in the hands of the West. Russia is supplying in full everything that we are committed to, to our main consumers in Europe and other regions of the world. 100%. Even the Ukrainian um, grid is fully supplied and we're doing all of this. Uh, and yet the prices are rising over there. That's not our fault. That is your miscalculation. Nothing to do with us, including the price rises for oil and petroleum products in the US. Uh, the imp- there's been an announcement that uh, there's a ban on Russian import of Russian oil, but the prices are high. Inflation is unprecedentedly high and has reached historical levels and they are trying to blame us for their own mistakes. Nothing to do with us, quote. To get a sense of the human toll of Vladimir Putin's war, look no further than the city of Mykolaiv in southeast Ukraine. People there are experiencing terrible suffering and unspeakable loss after days of heavy bombardment. As CNN's Nick Payton Walsh reports. This is probably when Russian forces tried to cut off Mykolaiv, pushing to its north to encircle it. Ukrainian shells here not holding them back. The governor told locals to bring tyres to the streets, which they did fast. And in the dark, Russia's punishment of just about everyone here did not let up. An airstrike flattened this warehouse. And if you needed proof the Kremlin seeks to reduce all life here, 1,500 tonnes of onions, beer and pumpkins were an apparent target for a military jet. So were Zhenya and Ludmilla. In the back bedroom, when a missile hit, Zhenya built this home himself, 43 years ago, and knows he lacks the strength to do so again. Ludmilla says she doesn't even have her slippers now. The hospitals are steeped in pain, their corridors running underground. Svetlana lost three friends Tuesday when Russian shells hit the car they were travelling in to change shift at a disabled children's home. When she ducked, she saved her life. She names her three dead friends. (laughs) 
Nikolai was badly burned by a missile in his yard. <laughs> Moscow targets hospitals, and so they perversely need their own bomb shelters, where sick children wait for the sirens to end. <laughs> Stas is 12 and alone. But he doesn't know the reason his father is not here just now is because he is burying Stas, his mother and sister. Sonia has shrapnel in her head, causing her to spasm. Her mother explains they were outside taping up the house windows when the blast hit, while all the time trying to get Sonia to keep still. Outside, it is cold and loud. Nick Payton Walsh, CNN, Mikolaev, Ukraine. Back after this. Stay with CNN. Welcome back. The latest estimates say at least two million Ukrainians have fled their homeland since Russia's invasion began two weeks ago. Many Ukrainians fleeing west for safety to countries like Poland, others crossing into Moldova, where residents are lending a helping hand and welcoming Ukrainians into their homes, as Ivan Watson reports. On the day Russia first attacked Ukraine, residents of this sleepy village in Moldova heard explosions. You can hear sometimes the, the explosions from, from Ukraine. It's terrifying. It's not just the sounds of war that are coming across the border. Refugees of the conflict have come here too. Some Moldovan villagers have opened their doors to their Ukrainian neighbors in their time of need. People like Boris Mikheyev, this 75-year-old widower welcomed Olga Kuznetsova, her mother, and two children into his home after they fled across the border last week. I feel badly for them, he says. The children are small. This little one is innocent. Boris holds two-year-old Andrei as if he was his own grandson. These Ukrainians have never been to Moldova before, but they fled after spending days and nights hiding from Russian airstrikes in the basement of their home. The family left on very short notice after hearing warplanes through the night. They packed two suitcases and left with 
five minutes notice. With no advanced planning, the women rely entirely on the generosity of Moldovans for food, shelter and clothing, including for eight-year-old Vera. Vera says there are very kind people here in Moldova. What made you want to help? I don't know how to act differently, you know. Rusanda Kurka has been helping find homes in the village for a few dozen of the hundreds of thousands of Ukrainians that have fled to Moldova in the last two weeks. So because it's normally to help people in need. Some people are hosting refugees, others are donating products, stuffs, things, and others are just praying for, for peace. Down the road from Boris's house, we meet Valentina Cherney. She took in her Ukrainian sister-in-law, Olga, and family, including 29-year-old Natalia, who is seven months pregnant. We have to stop Vladimir Putin, Olga tells me, or else he'll just keep going, invading countries like Moldova and Poland. As she speaks, Olga's 14-year-old daughter fights to hold back tears. The Moldovan government says tens of thousands of refugees are living in the homes of ordinary Moldovans. An extraordinary act of collective kindness from one of the poorest countries in Europe. Asked how long he could afford to continue hosting this Ukrainian family, Boris Mikheyev told me they can stay as long as they need. Ivan Watson, CNN, Hirtop, Moldova. Our coverage continues after this. It's been two weeks since Russia unleashed its unprovoked assault on Ukraine, and we've seen the devastating toll facing civilians as attacks ramp up, evacuations remain limited, and the death toll climbs. The heartbreak and devastation on the ground, unimaginable. As CNN's Full Black reports. Our plans are not to occupy Ukraine. We do not plan to impose ourselves on anyone. With those false words, the unthinkable began. Violence, destruction and suffering rained down on Ukraine and its people. In this new time of horrors, people sheltered underground or risked being bombed in their homes. Vast numbers had little choice but to flee. Their leader had a choice, but decided to stay. The president is here, he said from the streets of Kiev. Russia's firepower, its vastly greater numbers, failed to make quick early progress. Some of the first Russian units to try pushing into major cities were wiped out. While advanced weapons supplied by allies added to Russian losses. Here, knocking an attack helicopter out of the sky. Vladimir Putin insisted Russians and Ukrainians are one people. Ukrainian civilians showed they disagreed by chasing Russian vehicles, lying down before them, climbing on top of them, even defying Russian gunfire to peacefully protest the invasion. But while Ukraine's spirited resistance inspired the world, Russia's war machine continued to inflict a terrible human cost. Near Kiev, thousands fled across a downed bridge, the bombardment ever closer. For some in Ukraine, death now comes 
with little warning. This strike killed a family of four. Cameras have occasionally captured terrifying moments of impact. Or weapons flying through the sky. Far more often, they record the aftermath. The fires. Blackened, ripped and punctured buildings. Usually people's homes and businesses. But also schools, churches, hospitals. The devastated communities that prove false Russia's claim, civilians are not targets. Two weeks into this war, Russia's invasion grinds on, advancing in the south, slowly encircling Kiev from the north and Kharkiv in the east. The world can only watch, largely united in disgust, determined to punish Vladimir Putin, but incapable of stopping him. Phil Black, CNN. London. There are other challenges too. The war in Ukraine is exacerbating the global hunger crisis. Between 2019 and today, the UN World Food Programme says the number of people facing famine has risen over 60%. We're talking 44 million people. Add to that Ukraine's refugee crisis and global dependence on crops grown in Ukraine. The World Food Programme gets half of its wheat supplies from there. The consequences of this are going to be vast. And in the words of the director of the WFP, Russia's invasion has reminded us that the root cause of hunger around the world is human folly and reckless disregard for human life. In short, the conflict in Ukraine will leave millions more hungry around the world. And the director of the WFP, David Beasley, joins us now. David, you're seeing global challenges, I think, in the future that most of us can't comprehend because we're too fixated or at least fixated in the short term on Ukraine. I know you just came back from the border. Tell me what you're seeing, what you've seen and what you are thinking now. Julia, I was just in Ukraine and at the border talking with people, watching the families who just distraught, as you can imagine, it's very cold temperatures. They're leaving everything behind in harm's way, but they're the lucky ones that are actually making it into the European Union and getting all the help that they need. And so you're already talking about a couple of million people that are refugees, but you've still got over 40 million people that we need to reach with food inside. If we don't reach them immediately and quickly, you can only imagine the catastrophe within the war itself of 40 million people that will be starving to death. So we've got to develop supply chain systems putting in place. There's a lot of work to be done. Our teams are on the ground ramping up as we speak right now. How can you do that, David, in a situation as we've been talking about for the last hour where it's tough to see any kind of ceasefire hold for these evacuation corridors? We've seen infrastructure destroyed, um, like airplanes and airports and roads. How can you even do that? It's, it's tough. Now, uh, our experience, 80% of our operations are in conflict areas and war zones. So we know how to do this. And it's a very fluid, dynamic situation, as you can imagine, any given time. And let's, let's put aside just the impact this will have globally right now, because as you know, 50% of the grain that we purchase to feed 125 million people a year is now stuck 
we can't get. So now can we acquire all the grain that's stuck inside Ukraine and distribute it? But let me tell you some of the problems. Like you're saying, front lines and all the young men, guess where they are? They're on mm. the battlefield right now. So getting truck drivers and people that can offload and upload all of these kind of issues, in addition to moving these supplies into cities like Kiev and Kharkiv and many other places, because Ukraine is not a small country, but we are positioning food as we speak all across the country of Ukraine, different different distribution points, so all of our eggs are not in one basket in case there's a catastrophe, so we can have rapid response and at the same time meet the needs of the people where they are and when they are moving uh, as well. But I can tell you this, and this is very important to understand, we for example, in Syria, you could feed a Syrian inside Syria for 50 cents. That same Syrian ends up in Europe. It's over $70 per day. So the same thing you'll be facing here, a dollar or two for a Ukrainian in Ukraine that's not in harm's way versus what very well could be 75 to, to more dollars per day. So everything we can do to give comfort to those not in harm's way inside Ukraine, we are going to do. Yeah, I mean, and the backdrop here, of course, is soaring commodity prices as well. Um, what's the plan B if you can't get access to enough of that grain? Obviously, we know that, that Russia is also a huge exporter of, of wheat and other resources, too. Would you go to them? Would you negotiate and take grain from them, David? There's enough available grain around the world. It's just going to be very expensive as the pricing is now going up. It'll impact inside Ukraine, but it's going to devastate as well in the poor developing nations around the world that are already very fragile. We had a perfect storm before Ukraine with yeah. climate, conflict, and COVID. Our operational costs because of these three in the past year had gone up 40 to $50 million per month. And we were already short billions of dollars because of the crisis. Now, because of Ukraine, fuel prices are, as everyone knows, is going up. Food prices going up. Shipping costs going up. We're looking at an additional $750 million increase in our operations just to stay even when we now know we're billions of dollars short to reach the people globally and especially in Ukraine. But let me be very clear. You got 40 million people inside Ukraine. We've got to reach as many of those and create a stable food system in place to do everything we can to bring comfort to those who are in conflict and har- and those at harm's way, do everything we can to get them out of harm's way. Yeah, that's a call to action if ever I heard one, David, because this is another priority that we need to tackle immediately today. Thank you for joining us, sir. Good to talk to you. David Beasley there, the Executive Director at the World Food Programme. Thank you. And that's it for the show. Stay safe. Connect the World with Becky Anderson is next, and we'll be back tomorrow. When you work, you work next level. And when you play, you play next level. And when it's time to sleep, Sleep Number smart beds are designed to embrace your uniqueness, providing you with high-quality sleep every night. Sleep next level. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, the Queen Sleep Number C4 smart bed is only $1,599. Save $300 for a limited time, only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. Prices higher in Alaska and Hawaii. Quality sleep is essential, and that's why the Sleep Number smart bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. So you can choose what's right for you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores. Sleep Number does that. Sleep better together. 
J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. 